Psalm chapter 73, a psalm of Asaph. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell all your works. Father, we pray now as we have our Bibles open that the Holy Spirit would come and be our teacher, teach our hearts and our minds, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we do not always feel thankful at Thanksgiving. In fact, the holiday season, Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year can be some of the most stress-inducing times and times where people fall into depression. We can be overwhelmed by the busyness of the holiday schedule, by 
professional deadlines and educational deadlines that need to uh, be met before the end of the year rolls around, by the many parties that we feel pressured that we have to attend or the entertainment that we have to show to others. Now, others are pressured by the extra expenditures that come along around Christmas time as you look at your budget and you start scratching your head and wondering exactly how you're going to afford those gifts that must be purchased this year. And others are fallen into grief. You think as everyone seems to be happy around you, you all, you, all you can think of is that lost loved one who won't be there around the Thanksgiving table this year. Or a better time in the past when the family was all together and stable and loving one another more than they do now. I read a, an interesting uh, article this week. It was a psychiatrist who was saying the great spike in people that seek psychiatric help around the months of November and December as the holidays roll around. And Christians aren't exempt from these things. In fact, I think that sometimes we can put an undue pressure on ourselves as believers to really feel happy around this time of year. After all, Thanksgiving is a time where we recall God's blessings to us, his goodness, his greatness. Christmas rolling around is the time we remember Jesus being born into the world to save us from our sin. Certainly, there must be some sort of deficiency with ourselves, we think, if we just aren't feeling it this holiday season. Well, if you are a Christian who faces discouragement... If you are a Christian who experiences times where being thankful just doesn't quite come as easy as you wished, Psalm 73 comes as good news. Because as I said, Psalm 73 is a psalm for when we don't feel thankful. Now, the author of this psalm, if you take a look at your Bible, most likely the title will be that it is a psalm of Asaph. Asaph was the author of this uh, psalm, and Asaph was a man who was a worship leader of God's people. We read about him in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 4, where it says, David appointed some of the Levites as ministers of the ark of the Lord. And here was their job, to invoke, to thank, and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. And Asaph, we're told, was the chief. Uh, today, um, he would be, he would be the, the worship leader. I like the word chief better. I think we should call Caleb worship chief. I think that would be a whole lot cooler. Um, Asaph was literally paid. He made his living off of giving thanks to the Lord and helping people to praise God. And here in this psalm, he tells us about a time in his life, even we could say a time in his career, where he lost his way. And he tells us in this psalm how he was able to return back into a posture of thankfulness and praise to God. I want us to learn from his example as we journey with him from him losing his way to him finding his way back into thankfulness and joy and praise to the Lord to see what lessons we can learn from him. So how does he start his psalm? Uh, Asaph essentially starts out by saying, that his heart was struggling with what his head knew to be true. Take a look at verse 1. In verse 1, Asaph starts by saying, Truly, God is good to Israel, 
to those who are pure in heart. In other words, I know this to be true. I don't have a problem with my conviction. It's not a matter of instruction. I know this to be objectively true. God is good. But, verse 2, he tells us he's struggling. In fact, not just struggling, he's stumbled. He's stumbling and he's slipping. Verse 2, he says, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. What was his problem? In verse 3, he identifies for us the root problem of his struggle, of his stumbling, of his slipping. What is going on with his heart? He identifies a particular sin that he was struggling with, one that we might not expect to be the root cause of such a great problem in his life. What was his problem? Envy. Take a look at verse 3. In verse 3, Asaph says, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He's struggling with the sin of envy. It's, a, it's essentially a 10th commandment issue, isn't it? In the 10 commandments, the 10th ten, the out of the 10 commandments is do not covet what is your neighbor's. He's looking around particularly at the, un, the, the world of ungodly people, of worldly people, and he is beginning to covet what seems to be an easy life, a life that is filled with more joy and prosperity than the life that he is living as a believer in God. And what we really see him teaching us is that an envious heart leads to unthankfulness to God. An envious heart leads to unthankfulness to God. If you take a look at verses 4 through 12, that, that great paragraph there, you can almost imagine Asaph as he's in Jerusalem and he, he looks around and reflects on the surrounding pagan nations surrounding the land of Judah, and he starts taking stock of, of all the nations that don't hold to the same convictions and truth of God that he, as a believer in God, does. And he starts to vent the envy that he feels of those pagan nations. We could spend three Sundays overviewing uh, all of the things that he mentions in verses 4 through 12. Let me just give you the gist of essentially what Asaph is saying in these verses. Asaph is essentially saying, when I look at the unbelieving world, it seems like they're always at ease. And I am always struggling. It doesn't seem like they're troubled in the way that I am troubled. They don't have to worry about whether they're honoring God or not honoring God, whether they're following truth or following error. They don't have to worry about what the will of God is. They just do what they want to do. And even the evil that they do, they seem to get away with. In fact, if you take a look at verse 11, I think the, the real big issue that he has is that they're even able to get away with blasphemy. In verse 11... Asaph says, they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, he says. Always at ease, they increase in riches. Can you relate to Asaph? Have you ever struggled with the same thoughts? Sam Storms had a great comment on these verses when he said, a challenge to faith is when good things happen to bad people. Are you ever bothered when the wicked become even more wealthy? 
when perverts prosper, or when atheists live long and fruitful lives? Is it unsettling to your faith when those who hate Jesus triumph and those who love him endure unspeakable tragedy? It bothered Asaph. It got under his skin, was a thorn in his side, and threatened to turn his soul sour. In fact, Sam Storm says, it got so bad that when he was tempted to, he was tempted to jump ship, to abandon his faith in God, to chuck it all and join the other side. Asaph was deeply disturbed and perturbed by the prosperity of the wicked and the oppression of the righteous. It led him to question God's greatness and goodness. It stirred him to wonder if the pursuit of godliness was really the wisest path to follow. In fact, we may be shocked with what he says in verse 13 and 14. Uh, it got so bad, the ruminations in his heart, the discouragement, the envy that he was facing, that he, as a believer in God, was able to pen these words in verse 13 and 14. Asaph in his despair says, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Verse 14, he says, essentially, because it's not paying off. All the day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. He wonders why worldliness seems to work better than godliness. And in verse 15, I think because he's a worship leader, because he was a, a pastoral figure among his people, in verse 15, he's wise enough to know that he is very thankful that he never opened up his mouth and actually expressed the thoughts that he was struggling with in his heart. In verse 15, he said, if I, if I had opened my mouth, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Well, we see his problem. He knows God is good, but his heart is struggling to catch up. The subtle envy of the easy life of worldliness has crept in. I think it begs a question for each one of us. If you really think about it, how much of your unthankfulness, how much of your dissatisfaction, how much of your discontentment in life can actually be traced to a subtle desire to live in a worldly way? We're warned in the New Testament about the danger of coveting the world and loving the world and desiring it. And 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17, John writes saying, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. James put it, puts it much more strongly in uh, James chapter 4, verse 4. You adulterous people, he starts. That'll wake you up. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So he shows us an envious heart leads to unthankfulness to God. What is the remedy going to be? Uh, how, is, how is Asaph's heart turned? Because in verse 16, take a look at verse 16, he's not sure exactly how to understand all that's going on in his heart. He says, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. But God revealed to him two things, gave him two remedies 
for a thankless heart that turned him from bitterness back to joy and thankfulness in God. And the first remedy that God worked in his heart is so practical and so simple that it might actually surprise us. Because the first remedy is essentially he tells us he went to church. He went to church. Take a look at verse 17. After saying, I'm not, I, didn't, I didn't know how to process these things until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. For him, it would have been synagogue worship on a Sabbath, on a Saturday. He would have gone as the worship leader to his job. And maybe that morning, he was literally just feeling that he was just doing it as a job because his heart wasn't there. And then something happened. As he watched the fellowship of God's people as they loved one another, as he led the praises, as the word of God was preached Transforming power descended into his heart and the icy chill that was over his heart began to fall and God began to sober him up spiritually. Now, it's not that walking into a church building is a magic pill. We have people occasionally stop in throughout the year on a weekday and ask if they can just sit here in the sanctuary because it gives them a feeling of tranquility and peace. I don't think that's what Asaph is talking about. Rather, he's talking about what happens when God's people, the church, gather together to fellowship and worship, the transforming power that takes place when we gather and look to God together. This happens to me almost every week as a pastor. I show up before most of you do, I flick the lights on, and I come in as I walk through the parking lot, walk through these halls down to my office, I come dragging in all of the week's burdens with me, all of my distractions, all of my sins, and I know I've got to preach the, the word of God, and oftentimes my heart doesn't feel quite ready and quite there, and then you all show up, and I watch you. I watch your interactions. I watch the love of Christ that is evident in each other. As we gather together and I sit in the front, your praises cascade over me. I love those moments when I turn around and I look and I see someone in the congregation who's been suffering with an illness for a long time and you're raising your hand saying, oh, hallelujah, our hope in life and death. And despite the pain, you're singing with all the hope and joy. As I'm preaching and, and I see your hunger for the word of God and some of, you, some of you actually begin to cry as God's word begins to speak into your circumstances and situations. And without you even knowing it, you are transforming my heart and bringing me closer to the Lord. There is power in fellowship and corporate worship, is there not? We feel it every week. That's why we're told in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. How? Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. As Asaph sits in worship, his heart is cleared up and he begins to see the world, not through the heart of envy, but through the heart of truth. Take a look at verse 18. In eight, verse 18, he realizes now he was wrong all along. He had been off his game. What is really true of those who do not have the hope of salvation in God? Verse 18, he says, truly, 
You set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. In other words, he says, I was wrong. I shouldn't have envied those who do not have the hope of God. Now that I remember all the blessings that are mine in him. Paul tells us of the reality of who we were before we received salvation in Ephesians 2. He said, remember at that time, you Gentiles, you were separated from Christ. And what was your reality apart from him? No hope without God in the world. And Asaph says, how could I have ever envied that condition? And he's able to say, diagnose his heart correctly in verse 21. Take a look at verse 21. He says, my soul was embittered. I was pricked in heart. And because of that, I was brutish, ignorant. I was acting like a beast towards you. Well, now that he has sobered up through sitting through corporate worship and being encouraged by the, uh, by the truth and by the fellowship of God's people, he is able to see the second remedy to his thankless heart. He is able to meditate upon the salvation that God has given him through his faith. What do we do when we feel that we are in a time of thanklessness? What are the things that we can do to, to sober up our hearts and, and push us back into a posture of joy? We can meditate on what is ours in and through the salvation we enjoy in the Lord Jesus. Uh, those of you who are Friday morning men, uh, we just started a new book um, on our Friday studies. All the men are invited to come. It's at George's restaurant at 6 a.m. You, you got to be a man to show up that early. And uh, we just started a new book called Habits of Grace. And the author said one of the big things of transformation in the Christian life is learning to preach the gospel to yourself, to remind yourself of all that is yours in Christ. That is what Asaph does. And he points out four things in particular that push us into thankfulness when we meditate upon our salvation. And first, he says in verse 23, he thanks God for God's continual presence. Take a look at verse 23. In verse 23, Asaph says, Nevertheless, even though I was acting beastly towards you, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. The treasure of knowing that through the Holy Spirit, God's presence is always with us, even in the moments when we feel most alone, when we feel plagued by loneliness, when everyone else seems to have deserted us and abandoned us, the Lord stands by us. Secondly, he thanks God that in salvation he, we have the counsel, God's counsel through his word. Verse 24, he says, you guide me with your counsel. Now, we receive counsel each and every day. You can't turn on the TV without people uh, giving you counsel. But it's God's counsel that is the only counsel that gets to the core of who we are and can diagnose and encourage our hearts. Hebrews 4 says, his word is a, is a double-edged sword that pierces down to the very level of the soul. We never have to worry when we read God's counsel in his word, whether it's counsel that we can trust, counsel that is right. He is all wise. Thirdly, he thanks God for God's sweet relationship now in this lifetime 
and into eternity. In verse 24 and 25, he says, Afterward, you will receive me to glory. I have the hope of eternity. In verse 25, he says, Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. The sweet joy of having God as your ultimate treasure is the ultimate love of your life. To know that he loves you in the Lord Jesus and that he has caused you to love him. And lastly, he thanks God that in salvation he has God's strengthening power. I love his wording in verse 26. Verse 26, he says, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Now, our faithful pastor, Pastor John, who I affectionately call our grand pastor, he likes to remind me often that I do not know what growing old is like. He's right. Though he is the grand pastor, I think he's beginning to figure it out himself. And uh, though I don't know, I do know a man named the Apostle Paul who dealt with great physical pain and beatings and trials in his lifetime. And he was able to write of his own experience and the experience of all who, who feel the frailty of the physical form. He was able to write, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Though my heart and my flesh may fail, God is my strength. I got to visit a very dear sister to our church here uh, this week. Uh, she, she recently lost her husband and has been grieving the, that loss of many decades of sweet marriage. And she's been very sick. She's already a very tiny little thing. And as I walked into her room, I was shocked with how much the illness had set in and, and, and just how frail she really had become. And I read that passage to her. Though our outer self is wasting away, our, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And she started crying. And she pointed across the room to a picture of her and her husband from decades ago when they were young and gorgeous and beautiful and they were, they were sitting beside a lake and she said, she said, I just look at that picture and I tell myself, he leads me beside still waters. And I thought in the midst of that weakness and frailty, though her body is, is, is becoming less and less strong, her heart is becoming more and more empowered by the hope that she has in the gospel. Where else can you find that kind of encouragement? Where else can you find that kind of strength other than in the hope of the gospel being produced in us by God's strength through the Holy Spirit? The blessing of knowing that no trial can ultimately defeat us. But that is, a dear brother reminded us in our ABF class that I sat in this morning, our death day is just our graduation day. Those moments of great frailty before death finally takes us, that's just the final exams. He's gonna graduate us into perfection and into eternity. Asaph having meditated and rehearsed all of these joys, he's able to affirm himself for himself at the end of this passage 
what is true, what is ultimately true. Take a look at verse 27 and 28 as he closes. He says, behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge. For what purpose? That I may tell of all your works. As Asaph closes this psalm, he pivots and he teaches us a, a good lesson. That a heart that is thankful to God will be a heart that tells of his goodness to others. When we are filled to the brim of thankfulness for all that God has done for us, who he is, the salvation that we enjoy, that thankfulness can't help but spill over out into our words as we tell all about his goodness and greatness for us. I love the wording in verse 26, and with this we'll close. In verse 26, Asaph calls God his portion. As I thought about it, this Thursday, as we sit around the Thanksgiving table, we're going to have a plate before us that's going to be quite a mighty portion. And how amazing is it that that physical portion that is before our eyes pales in comparison to the portion that is ours that eyes, only the eyes of faith can know and see our ultimate portion of God Almighty, Him being ours, our refuge, our goodness. You turn on that parade on the television in New York on Thursday morning. You take a look at all those happy, beautiful people that will be gathered there and all sharing, sharing what they're thankful for. How many of them do you think know about the great portion that is theirs in the cross? and the empty tomb. Who's going to tell them? What about the friends and family that will be sitting around your table on Thursday that do not have the hope that you have in the gospel? Are they going to hear from you this Thursday? For me, it's good to be near God. He is my portion. If we are truly thankful, let us let others know of the goodness that is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. For us, it is good to be near God. Let's pray.